Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. Although it may sound as though I've been laboring down a salt mine, people like me have been doing likewise. It's not like that. I mean, we've exerted every sinew. It's been exhausting at times, but it's also been an immense privilege, great fun. The people in this space are extraordinary and more and more piling in the whole time. So that's when I think about whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic or whatever else, that's one of the things the critical mass is building and younger people are a really important component of that. I'm very pleased today to introduce John Elkington. John is a pioneer in the world of corporate responsibility and sustainable development. As a writer, consultant and serial entrepreneur, he's been at the forefront of sustainability thinking for four decades. John is the author or co-author of 19 books and is credited with coining key sustainability terms including environmental excellence, the triple bottom line and people, planet and profit. John is also co-founder of four environmental and sustainability businesses. His latest, Volons, is a future-focused business working at the intersection of sustainability, entrepreneurship and innovation. Thank you very much, John, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda. It's a great uh, honor to have an opportunity to talk to you and uh, hear what you're doing today, what you think is important in the, the world of sustainability, and also get some perspective on the you know several decades uh, pioneering work you've done. Thank you, Fergal. And I'm, I'm looking forward first to the conversation, but also digging more into the other interviews that you've done today. Can you tell me about your work at Volans and you know what your priorities are at the moment, John? So as, as some people will know, but many will not, I mean, I've been 40 years in the environmental and then sustainability spaces. And over that time, I've set up four companies since uh, 1978. They all still exist. The first was environmental data services. The third was sustainability. And then about nine years ago, 2008, um, we set up Volans. And the idea there was that um, I was increasingly concerned that the sustainability agenda that we've done so much over the years um, to promote was mainstreaming, but as it mainstreamed, it was diluting. And, and many people increasingly saw it largely as about corporate social responsibility, and that's great, and shared value, and that's great, and, and, and a range of things in that space. But for me, Sustainability has always been around system change, um, and that piece seemed to be largely lost. Now, it's come back uh, subsequently, and, and it's great to be uh, in this space at a time when a range of other people are playing into the uh, system change uh, story. But that, that's, that's why we set up the organization. Uh, just very quickly, the very small team by design, and I, I find that if... Um, uh, teams get much beyond sort of 15 to 20, I struggle. Um, so so, so um, small team, uh, originally from uh, sustainability and from the World Economic Forum and the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, but increasingly it's expanded to uh, a range of different uh, nationalities and, and, and forms of experience. So happy to go into a, a bit more detail, but that's at least the context. 
Right. That's, that sounds very interesting. And con- continuation uh, with, with a more focus, as you say, on the system change side of it. So what exactly uh, did you do with, with, with your clients? Uh, who, who, how would you characterize your clients? And maybe just tell us a little bit about the kind of work you would do. Well, it, it, it varies considerably because um, a key part of the work, obviously, is with individual uh, companies. And, and, and that would range from involvement in boards or advisory boards. Uh, so, for example, at Nestle, now for about seven or eight years, I think, I've been involved in their creating shared value advisory uh, council. And, and, and some of that work is you know, going out to see the um, operations in countries like Indonesia or most recently at the Ivory Coast or Colombia. Um, and, and firstly, understanding, but also along the way, obviously critiquing and challenging as, as best um, uh, we can. Um, and, and, and that sort of entry point is not atypical for us. Quite often, in addition to doing project work, we uh, are quite often invited into a sort of an ongoing um, advisory role. But something started to happen about a year to 18 months ago, actually in, in some ways even longer than that, about maybe six or seven years ago, the, we got involved in the early stages of what became known as the B team uh, with uh, Sir Richard Branson and Jochen Zeitz now as the um, co-chairs. And I was, I was part of the founding group of that we did a, a bunch of stuff, but most recently, uh, the Global Compact, so a much bigger business-to-business platform, with I think about 9,000 corporate members and perhaps around 4,000 non-corporate members, uh, came to us. And late last year, I spoke at a conference, um, a, a Global Compact conference in Madrid, and was quite provocative about the role that business-to-business uh, business platforms are currently playing and, and, and giving some suggestions about some of the things that they might do. And, and, and I've been partly invited there on the strength of the fact that I've, I've worked with um, the new executive director of the Compact, Lisa Kingo, right back to 1989 when she was, uh, when we first started, uh, and I was then with sustainability, working with Nova Nordis. And um, so I, I, I did this rather provocative Piece and then went back into the audience and sat down alongside her and she said, okay, so when do we start? And so what we're doing with um, the compact is trying to bridge. Uh, if, you, if, you, if I think about the work that I've done over sort of 35, 40 years with business, it, it, it started off bridging between the world of civil society, activist campaigners, NGOs and so on, and the mainstream business world. And that, for example, is what we started off doing with uh, Nova Nordisk uh, in the late 1980s. Then about 15 years ago, it, 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 it expanded to also bring in uh, social innovators, social entrepreneurs, impact investors, and these sorts of people and bridging between those worlds. And, and about two to three years ago, I'd, I'd known about the XPRIZE Foundation, for example, in California for about 10, 12 years, um, often very struck that people we were working with in business have never heard of people like Peter Diamandis or even you know, Elon Musk. I mean, it's a relatively recent arrival in, in, in many people's uh, mental maps. And yet we feel uh, that in that sort of exponential thinking, exponential mindsets, exponential technologies and business model space, there is something that is not only a provocation to uh, the current generation of, uh, of sustainability professionals, 
but uh, potentially a set of conversations and a set of clues as to where our field needs to go next. This final point there is I think, you know, I look at the Sustainable Development Goals and I see, although most people don't see it, uh, a set of exponential goals to some degree because, firstly, you know, the time scale is fairly tight. Uh, but, you know, we've got to do this, if we do it at all, by 2030. Um, and you look at the uh, goals around poverty and hunger and you think, what sort of growth trajectories or, or, or evolutionary tra- trajectories do we need to get onto? What is your assessment, I guess, of the role that companies have to play in the first instance in, in reaching the, these targets and in uh, the changes that are necessary? Hmm, well, I mean, as you know, Fergal, I mean, the, the, this is the first time that the UN, in a way, has directly gone to business and said, you know, you'll make or break. Uh, that wasn't true with the Millennium Development Goals. Some com- companies, including Nestle, as it happens, uh, took the MDGs and, uh, and worked within that framework where they could. But the sustainable development goals are significantly different, not simply because there are twice as many of them, but, but because this time around um, the private sector is, is seen to be critical. Now, that for me is, is a huge shift because when I first started to deal with business in the um, mid-late 1970s, you were really lucky if you even got through the factory fence or the the front door. Uh, And if you did, you were largely meeting people who were lawyers or or, or public relations people and and nothing uh, intrinsically wrong uh, with those sorts of people, but they're all on the defensive. And now what I find is that the door to the C-suite, the door to the um, boardroom is typically... Uh, well ajar and and, and, uh, business leaders are are now understanding that these issues are absolutely critical, absolutely central to their uh, future uh, prospects and desperate in a way to understand what they can do without driving their businesses off the road uh, to address some of these absolutely critical um, issues. And I think one of the things that's shifted is that the evidence of uh, climate uh, change, uh, as an example, uh, is still denied uh, by a bunch of different folk. I mean, people like Nigel Lawson here and Donald Trump in the United States, but many, many other people. But the evidence is now there uh, in front of, uh, for example, I you know I do a fair amount of work in California, and the the the, um, the drought conditions of the last sort of three to four years have been a real wake up call. The um, uh, issues around forced migration. Uh, for places like Europe, again, uh, a major um, uh, wake-up uh, for, 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 for business uh, leaders. So it, it, it's no longer an issue for many of these people of, actually, is this real? Uh, won't this sort of hit us when you know my, my successor or the successor's successor is opposed? This increasingly feels like something that hits us you know, on our current uh, watch. So I, I, I think the the sustainable development goals are timely. I think they're a little complex for most business people, but, but there are various initiatives underway to try and uh, make sense of them. And then one of the things that I think is changing is a sort of generational shift in, in business. So um, a lot of our work is with top teams, and those people are typically in their late 40s uh, through into their sort of early, mid-60s. Uh, and what we now see is those people increasingly listening to, being influenced by, uh, pulling through in their organizations, uh, younger people, particularly 
the millennials and the millennial generation, as, as endless surveys suggest. Uh, I mean, then they're, they're not going to uh, devote their entire lives to to, 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 to saving the world or, or, or whatever. But they see these issues as absolutely natural part of what business ought to be doing, and, and typically uh, they increasingly want with, want to work uh, with and for uh, businesses that, for, by their lights, are, are, are trying to do uh, the right thing. And I, that, that, for me, is a really quite profound. Uh, shift and it's been on an accelerative curve in the last sort of five to seven years I would say. What's the connection between large companies and this exponential thinking? I, I read recently that just 90 companies caused two-thirds of man-made global warming emissions. Yeah I think I think the 90 uh, companies statistic or, or um, research is probably done by the Carbon Disclosure uh, Project and I think in a way uh, we we all get immensely excited by the insurgents, the startups, the Elon Musks of this world. Um, but um, the incumbent industries and the incumbent uh, companies and the incumbent supply chains too represent a major challenge because if if, if they remain in existence uh, and lock in certain ways of uh, handling carbon or or, or, or valuing ecosystem services or whatever it might be, then then, in Houston we really do uh, have a problem. And it's funny because personally, when I came into this space, many of my friends in groups like Greenpeace would say, actually it doesn't really matter uh, if you want to work with business. That's not the future. What we've got to do is pin them down so they can scarcely move. And, you know, pretty much in those words. And my, my response at the time, so this was through the late 70s and then through the 80s, was we really have no option but to try and harness the creativity and the innovation uh, potential of business. You don't do that if you simply force them uh, to do these things because then they do go on the defensive. They are protective of of the old ways of um, uh, doing things. And I think what's happening at the moment um, is in the context of something really quite profound. Um, And we've just done a report just launched called Breakthrough Business Models. It was done for the relatively new Business and Sustainable Development Commission, which pulls together many of these uh, business-to-business platforms. So people like the World Economic Forum, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, the uh, Global Compact, the B-Team, and and so on and so on. And in the report, uh, what we have done is to look, to open out the lens and basically say, What's going on in the macroeconomic context, in a way? And uh, the World Economic Forum um, recently published a book, a short book, uh, called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, which I think is very good. It's very clear. But it basically says that we're going through one of these periods of intense systemic disruption, largely driven by uh, technologies, but, but alongside them, new mindsets and new business models. I think that fourth industrial revolution is good branding, but I think it's unduly simple. I think there actually, since the industrial revolution, there have been five big economic ways. We're coming off the the last one of about 40-some years has largely been driven by information technology, not surprisingly. We're coming out of that period, and we're we're headed into a period, I think, of quite considerable uh, uncertainty where, where... old ways of doing things, old industries, entire industries start to sort of melt down in front of us uh, or around us. Um, so to your question, I think that um, what we're seeing in industries, for example, like uh, General Motors, GM, with their purchase of Lyft, 
um, and and uh, the automotive industry more uh, generally looking at what um, people like Tesla are doing the the shift towards uh, work on autonomous uh, vehicles. So not, go, not not just cars. I mean trucks and buses uh, and so on. They see a something happening in that wider le- landscape which is systemic, which has massive implications. And I think you know city planners are just beginning to wake up to the fact that over the next human generation, we may find that somewhere between 30 and 60% of the space in cities like Los Angeles at the extreme uh, becomes usable for other uh, purposes as we switch towards autonomous vehicles. And I think incumbent companies have really struggled to get their brains around the sustainability agenda, and now they're also struggling to get their brains uh, and their business models wrapped around uh, some of these really profound technological and structural changes in their uh, markets. And I, I, in a sense, what we're saying is actually these two are um, different sides of the same uh, coin of change, uh, if you like. The, 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 um, the structural uh, disruptions that we're starting to go through uh, will, on balance, shift us towards more sustainable economies, but that's not guaranteed, and we have to spend much more time working with these disruptive innovators to ensure that they don't uh, screw up, as we've done with so many other technologies before. Right. What do you mean there, John? (laughs) Well, um, there was a guy called Tom Midgley. Um, So he was in the 1920s, 1930s, an absolutely brilliant scientist. He was at General Motors, and uh, also at DuPont. Um, And he, I think, uh, had over 100 patents to his name. Absolute, um, startlingly uh, brilliant uh, research chemist and so on. And he came up with three innovations, which to me I often um, uh, recall when I'm talking to audiences, because I think it just shows that even with the best intentions in the world, uh, we can cause problems that we, you know, wouldn't have occurred to us in our worst nightmares uh, uh, previously. So, for example, he came up with leaded gasoline, uh, which at the time was a, a wonderful breakthrough in terms of anti-knock uh, technology and, and fuel efficiency and so on. But we all know now that lead in the environment, a lot of it coming from cars, um, had a profound uh, effect on on children's uh, learning uh, ability. It, 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 its effect on nervous systems has turned out to be dramatically greater than anyone had any reason originally to suspect. The second innovation that he was responsible for was some of the early uh, freons, uh, chlorofluorocarbons. So brilliantly uh, safe set of chemicals because they're inert. But as we know, because they were inert, they drifted up into the stratosphere and, and gobbled up uh, the ozone uh, layer. So we, we, we found ourselves with an Antarctic um, ozone hole. So again, no, for a second time, Midgley and his teams have um, uh, caused semi-catastrophic uh, and actually catastrophic uh, consequences that, that, that they had never imagined would um, uh, evolve. The third thing that he evolved was or developed was... Um, you might almost call it a robotic bed. So he, he contracted, sadly, polio um, and died of it in 1944. And um, he, he, he built a bed out of ropes and pulleys that would, would, would get him in and out without 
uh, nursing uh, support. And in the end, the bed strangled him. And I, I, I you know, it's a, it's a tragic story, but I just use it to say, you know, one man, a hundred patents, and look at the scale of the damage that he caused. In Silicon Valley, you talk to people who are working on uh, all of these extraordinarily uh, uh, interesting new areas of technology and new business models. So you, you, you think of things like big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence, and you think about synthetic biology, and you think about autonomous vehicles and geoengineering and so on. Who from the sustainability movement at this stage is engaging them at exactly the point where they're beginning to um, co-evolve uh, our future? And the answer is, sadly, again, that much of the sustainability industry is focused backwards on the problems that, you know, we cut our teeth on, you know, things to do with oil, chemicals, the automotive sector, none of that's gone away. But we're not really yet leaning properly, I think, into the very fast emerging future. And I think that's what we have to do next. Right. That's very interesting, John. And it ties into quite a few uh, themes. You've covered a lot of ground there. Um, um, I, I'm interested in, uh, you, you talked about Silicon Valley and um, these new technologies and things. Where does the whole question of finance come in here? Because it's a crucial role to play. I mean, clearly also in terms of large companies and their motivation and ability to change. But when it comes to these, uh, you know, innovative technologies and so forth, I know people like Doug Rushkoff and throwing uh, stones at the Google bus talks about this, you know, that the venture capital model, I mean, well, he argues, you know, uh, that finance gets a disproportionate, you know, return on these kind of uh, new technologies. Is that not a problem? Yeah, I think um, uh, there was a time when um, uh, governments funded a lot of high technology, often for defense purposes and or space purposes, and there was spin-off from that, and then the venture capitalists uh, picked it up. I think increasingly we've seen venture capitalists playing a more active role. And if I think back uh, through my own uh, career, I mean, I've worked with maybe nine or ten uh, socially responsible investment uh, funds um, over the years and uh, a smaller number of venture capital uh, funds, but um, they tend to be ones that are more inclined to thinking about the sorts of issues we're discussing uh, today. But I think fundamentally the financial system is not fit uh, for purpose, and I think it's it's not just the fault of financiers, it's, it, it, it's a fault of our whole economic uh, model, and although one does see uh, some economists now talking quite sensibly about sustainability-related issues. We've got a bit of a lock-in uh, with our financial system, and, and, and that is at its sort of quintessence or extreme, I suppose, uh, in the venture capitalist uh, uh, world, where people are trying to get a pretty dramatic and relatively short term, sometimes, um, uh, set of uh, profits out of uh, out of their investments. But I think it's changing. And I think, you know, just this morning in the Financial Times, I was reading uh, BlackRock's uh, comments on, on, on climate change and the associated uh, risks. These things take quite a long time to sort of drive through. And I'm often reminded of um, a book that I read when I was 14, which was um, Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he, he was the first person to write about paradigm shifts. And one of the things that always stuck in my mind about that book was he talked about uh, a 70 to 80 year time cycle for, for paradigm shifts. And partly that is, as you know, you have to get rid of the 
the people who were infected with the previous paradigm and then the people to some degree that they taught. And I think we're about 65 years into one of those shifts. So my personal reading is that alongside this sort of uh, big shift in the structure of our economies driven by uh, new technologies and, 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 and um, new business models, uh, we've also got a shift in paradigm. And I think that's going to accelerate in the next sort of 15 uh, to 20 years. And if you look back through history, when that sort of process does happen, uh, it can go every which way. Um, so the energies that are liberated um, are not necessarily always uh, constructive. And I think we have, as a movement and as an industry now, sustainability industry, a challenge in front of us, which is to become much more and much more effectively uh, political uh, with a small p um, and try and not just encourage uh, companies that we like to do better lobbying, but as an industry start to push coherently and with considerable energy for the sorts of system conditions that we feel or, or we sense uh, will be uh, necessary. And I see a growing appetite for that, but as yet... Uh, the responses are not as uh, convergent or as coherent as I think they would need to be. When it comes to these new so-called platform technologies, John, like like Uber, like Airbnb, I know, for example, that there are emerging models that are cooperatively owned, where, where platform users, for example, get to share in the economics of benefits of ownership. What potential do you see in these emerging models? Totally. And I, I, I think these uh, smaller entities, uh, you know, I'm a great admirer of the cooperative movement. Uh, both of the companies that I'm still involved in, uh, Sustainability and Valence, uh, are certified uh, B corporations. I, I, I love the B corporation uh, movement as it spreads uh, around the world. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that these sorts of initiatives will have. And, and, and the work of social entrepreneurs very often is very much grassroots oriented and, and, and bottom up rather than top down. But I, I think we have, this isn't an either or, it's a, it's a both and um, challenge that we face. So, so it's great to have those sorts of people doing what they do. We must support them wherever and however we possibly can. But we are stuck with a uh, a global economy, which is with vested assets, sunk capital, and so on, uh, which we also at the same time have to work uh, on, partly to break it down and partly to rebuild it. Um, and you know that's not always popular with the people who have the the the, the, the sunk capital, as we see currently with the coal industry. As, as in really short order, the the needle switches from. Of course, coal's got a future for the next fifty to one hundred years. To the point where even uh, owners of coal businesses are starting to ask themselves, if, if China's appetite is going to go down at that sort of rate. Um, and, and if the divestment uh, movement continues to have the sort of impact that, it, that it's having, maybe coal doesn't have uh, much uh, of a future. And we've even seen that sort of bubble up in the U.S. presidential uh, elections uh, this time around. So um, I, I think we are, when I say we've got to do the politics, I, I, I'm, I'm serious about that. I mean, I, I don't like, I'm not political in a conventional sense at all. Uh, myself. But uh, on the other hand, I think if we leave it to others to do the politics, this will not go uh, fast enough and it will not go far enough uh, in, in the sort of timescale that we have. The sums of money is being bandied around, John, when it comes to investment in new infrastructure for climate change, five, six, seven trillion dollars a year are mind boggling. 
Are you not worried about the dangers of financing this with conventional financial models, with the distribution of returns that we've come to see? So there is, a, of course, a real danger there, but I think several things are going on at the same time, some of which are really quite problematic and others give me a, a good deal of hope. So, for example, on the problematic side, I think if we look at the OECD sort of developed richer uh, regions, we have this demographic issue, which is the graying of the baby boom uh, generation. And, and most people think that is probably on balance uh, benign, although it may have, uh, it may dent uh, economic uh, productivity. I see it as potentially quite malign. Uh, and we've just had in the UK, the Brexit vote where older people on balance generate, uh, uh, you know, voted for um, extraction from the European Union because they felt threatened by uh, the global economy and, uh, and much that went uh, with it. And I do fear that as the boomers uh, age and become reliant on their pensions, they will invest in safer uh, businesses. And that very often will push them into investment or the funds through which they invest their assets in, 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 into businesses that are stuck in the old uh, order. So I, I, I think we have quite a challenge to address there. And I don't think we can simply leave this for millennials to sort out. I think we've got to work at this sort of inter or pan-generationally. At the same time, your point about green infrastructure or sustainable infrastructure or whatever, I think is fundamentally important because you can actually reconcile the appetite of the boomers for relatively safe uh, returns over time with the sort of investment returns that you can get in well-developed, well-designed, well-managed uh, infrastructural uh, projects. So I, I, I think there is a, a game to be played here, and it, it pulls you into a very different financing often than the, the sort of venture capital or socially responsible investment uh, uh, financial worlds that we, we, we've discussed uh, to date. Um, and it's a very different uh, set of companies playing into that space, and you have a, a, a bunch of issues, particularly in the global south, which we are really seriously going to have to wrestle with. And, and, and for example, uh, bribery and corruption, which you know, I've experienced uh, quite a number of times, certainly in the early part of my career, even in UN-directed uh, projects. I, I was hearing a couple of days ago that... Um, the, the amount of money that we would need to develop the, all of the sustainable infrastructures that we will require uh, is about the same amount of money that goes into bribery and corruption uh, globally. So, you know, the, 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 there, there are such close and intimate links between these different elements of the sustainability agenda. And I found over the years many people can't see uh, the relevance uh, of bribery and corruption, but it's endemic very often in the infrastructure uh, marketplace. Can you talk a little bit about targets and setting targets for climate change, setting really big targets to reduce emissions, particularly given the narrowing window of time we have in which to take action? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think um, it's very clear that, that human beings are singularly poor at thinking exponentially. And I, you know, I, I, I would count myself uh, in their number. Um, and, and yet, as I discussed with the Tom Mitchley example, some of the consequences, unintended consequences of what we do um, can take us in really problematic uh, exponential directions. And we, we only wake up to that a bit late in the day and, and um, then struggle to 
catch up. And I think the longer we leave setting stretch uh, and even exponential targets in, for example, the, the, the space, the more dramatic uh, the target is going to have to be a decade or so uh, along the way. So firstly, I think targets are immensely important. But again, we think that in different companies, different sectors, there's a very different um, uh, funding of, of the role of targets. So if you take, for example, uh, uh, Unilever or Living Plan, Paul Pullman has obviously driven very clear targets, which even many of his own colleagues that they can uh, meet or, or how they best might do that. And you have Nestle, which I've already referenced, um, saying, you know, we don't want to set targets. What we want to do is to tell people when we've achieved things. And that's, you know, that's very Swiss and one can understand it. But I think we're at a point in all of this where we're, we're at a series of inf inflection points all at the same time. And we have to give people a sense of not just direction, but the amount of stretch that they're having to, they're going to have to um, achieve in a relatively short order. So firstly, I think targets are absolutely crucial. Um, setting exponential targets is harder, um, uh, but one of the things that really strikes us, I mean, in the last, this year, I've, I've been to see people like the XPRIZE Foundation, uh, like Google's X uh, uh, facility at Singularity University, and what these people often say, and it's something that we developed a little bit in the uh, Breakthrough Models uh, report, is that uh, rather than setting a 1% or a 10% incremental target, why don't we uh, uh, head for what the exponential folk would describe a 10x or even a 100x target, which may on the face of it seem insane and impossible and unachievable, but even if at the end of that you get 3x or 5x or five times the, the scale of what you originally thought was even uh, possible, that's worth um, a lot. It's worth a lot to society, but uh, done in the right way, it could actually be worth a lot to the companies involved as well. Right, right. That's very interesting. Um, you mentioned again the business models there, John. Uh, can you maybe talk about a couple of a uh, few ideas there that you think are particularly exciting? I know there's been a lot of uh, development in the sharing economy, uh, new models emerging there, which are and the circular business models. But maybe one or two that people might not have be so familiar with, but also uh, that you you find particularly exciting. Well, I think the um, firstly, what we're finding is that the uh, excitement around uh, the sharing economy and the circular economy is well placed. I mean, both those concepts have gained a degree of traction well outside the, um, the sort of almost campaigning world in, in, in which they uh, initially evolved. What we're also finding is that some of these uh, new business models, uh, like Uber, like like uh, Airbnb. Um, are bumping into uh, system conditions where it's, it's clear that, for example, with Airbnb, I was just reading again this morning about New York's pushback against the, the rate of expansion of Airbnb because of the impact on, on, on um, uh, the property market. And um, so there, it's not just that there are economic consequences for hotel groups like the Marriott or, or, or whatever, but that there are social uh, consequences. And we see that with Uber and, uh, and the question around, or Deliveroo uh, or whatever, with, with, with the question around the conditions um, uh, of employment. 
So I, I think we're going to have a lot of pushing to and fro on, on all of that. The sort of business models that um, I find um, perhaps most interesting are the ones that firstly uh, are developing bottom-up. So we, we talk about in the, in the report about a number of um, uh, approaches which bring uh, Western-style, uh, for example, health services right down to the um, – uh, the grassroots using uh, advanced uh, information technology in Pakistan, for example, there's a, a group called Doctors, D O C T H E R S, largely directed towards uh, women. Uh, in in East Africa, you'll know of um, companies like uh, Off Grid Electric, um, who are bringing solar energy within the reach of um, village communities, very much off the uh, grid. Uh, to date and in, in the process helping to address uh, some of the real, uh, not just the, the, the cost uh, problems around uh, having to buy kerosene as a, as a, a lighting uh, fuel, but the, the, the sort of health hazards and, uh, and explosion risks and so on. But, you know, so there's an immense ferment of activity at the grassroots level. But I'm also really interested in, in, in what some of the, the bigger incumbent companies are doing. And I think GE, General Electric, with its eco-imagination thing, that, that was often dismissed as as um, public relations. And I think it certainly was a rebundling and a very astute rebundling of uh, greenish uh, activities. But over time, the sheer scale of that operation cannot fail uh, to uh, impress. You've got groups like Nova Nordis, who you know, are in, in financial difficulties in the United States at the moment. But uh, are looking out into the future and bringing a very different form of analysis to bear and saying, you know, we're sitting on a gold mine. We could make a huge amount of money from diabetes care and, and the sale of insulin uh, in particular. But if diabetes uh, continues to develop at the current rate, it's going to collapse healthcare systems in different parts of the world. And here in the United Kingdom, we've even got the National, National Health Service fretting quite considerably about that sort of issue. And I so is that a business model? It's it's not yet a business model. It's it, it's a company thinking about the the structure and the nature of the market that it will serve over time, and trying to do some of the thinking that actually quite often governments at the moment are not doing. So we're not just thinking about business models. I think we're we're having to think about economic models, and that brings you back into the space of economists and economics and valuation and pricing and these sorts of things. And I think we really deserve a lot better from the economics profession than we've had in the last 30 to 40 years. But I have some faith in the, the, the rising generation uh, of economists. Right. That's, uh, that's good. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> optimistic on that front. So uh, more generally, you, are you optimistic uh, about the future? <laughs> well, um, I walked into uh, a Commonwealth uh, conference on Friday and we were all uh, – asked to introduce ourselves and, and, and the implicit question, were we optimistic or pe pessimistic? And I just read the World Wildlife Fund's um, latest uh, round of their um, yes. planet index. So basically 58% drop in wildlife uh, since 1970. And I came into this space by, by raising funding for WWF in its first year in 1961. I was 11. So when I got to the Commonwealth Secretariat and, and, and we were all going up and saying who we were and what we did, I just said, 
John Elkington failed environmentalist. You know, I've, I've worked for decades uh, in this space, and on my watch, on our watch, we've seen this great unraveling uh, of the natural world. And, and, and I'd also that morning read about shark populations in the world ocean and how their removal at a catastrophic rate has major implications uh, for climate uh, change. Because um, and if you take out the top predators, the ecosystems uh, which, which capture and, and, and hold a lot of carbon start to break uh, down. And we already see evidence of that happening with the removal uh, of shark populations. So to your question, I was born an optimist. I remain an optimist. Um, but I'm optimistic on certain conditions. And, and, and one of them is that instead of becoming Pollyanna-ish and, and, and believing that all of this is doable and we will do it, we've really got to pay attention to the science and what scientists are telling us, whether it's about climate change or the loss of genetic diversity or, or water stress or, or, or whatever. And I think that is something business is well-placed to do at a time when politics and politicians are tending to turn their backs on experts and turning their backs on science, which I think is deadly dangerous. So I'm an optimist, but, but, but a qualified optimist. <laughs> Thank you, John. And I know uh, on your watch that uh, you say on your watch, but I know it's, it's uh, you've been uh, uh, fighting and uh, battling and, uh, you know, working hard on, on these issues. Just finally, I guess, looking forward, you know, Volans and, and, and the Breakthrough Innovation Platform, uh, anything you'd just like to say about what, you know, what your aspirations are there over the next few years? Yeah, thank you. Um, and the first thing I'd just uh, add to what I, I just said was that um, although it may sound as though I've been laboring down a salt mine and people like me have been doing likewise, it's not like that. I mean, we've exerted every sinew. It's been exhausting at times, but it's also been an immense privilege, great fun. The people in this space are extraordinary and more and more are piling in the whole time. So now that's when I think about whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic or whatever else, now that's one of the things the critical mass is building and, and, and younger people are uh, a really important uh, component of that. In terms of the breakthrough innovation piece, one of the things we feel we have to uh, achieve next year, as you know, is the 30th anniversary of the uh, Brundtland Commission report on uh, sustainable development, which really sort of introduced that all into the the, the mainstream uh, language over time. And I, I think one of the things we have to do is look backwards and ask the question, what were we trying to do uh, at that point? And that, you know, that's when we set up the company sustainability. What did we manage to achieve over the 30 years? What did we fail uh, to achieve? What lessons did we learn and which ones have we not yet um, learned before we gaily skip into this future and think we're going to um, solve uh, the sustainable development goals uh, by 2030 or even uh, you know by the 2030s. I, th I think we have to be really careful to critically analyze uh, what we've been doing. And I think very often um, we bang up against ceilings or we bang into walls and we think those are you know, inevitable constraints on reality. And I think what's just about to happen, we see it in, in the approaches that we're getting, it's some extraordinary sorts of companies and extraordinary sorts of industries who you wouldn't think would have any sort of role uh, in a sustainable future. It's starting to turn to people like us and say, if that's real, if, if we're going to have to break through in some way, how do we uh, best do that? And I think when that call comes, when, when the 
know, leaders in every sector start to turn to the sustainability industry, by God, we've got to be in a position to give them uh, answers that are uh, likely to be uh, effective and for at least a proportion of them uh, successful. Right. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, John, and all this work, uh, very important work. And thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to uh, the Sustainability Agenda podcast. That was fascinating. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Virgil. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.